Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Hey, good morning again. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Um, the question was posed to me this this way yesterday. Are you dying to live or are you living to die? Are you just dying to live? Or are you um, living um, to die? I suppose that the person who asked it was trying to ask a Galatians 2.20 question. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I, I don't live under the flesh. I live, um, you know, as a, as a vessel um, of the Spirit of Christ. So, uh, but what they attached was um, a conversation that Yair Rosenberg had um, with his dear friend, Amir Tibon, or Tibon. And, um, and so I want to share it with you today. Um, uh, Yair Rosenberg is a religious Jew. He lives here in the United States. Um, he he is a journalist and he writes and he's got a lot of friends in Israel. Um, and um, and he he posted this conversation and so I'm going to share part of it with you here this morning. Uh, Yair says, um, when I first heard that Israeli civilians were being massive massacred in the country's uh, Gaza border, I thought of my friend Amir Tibi. Tibon. I'm going to say it's Tibon. I might be mispronouncing it. And if so, I, I am so sorry. Amir, says Yar, is an exceptionally talented journalist, fluent in Hebrew, Arabic, and English, has devoted his life and his skills to uh, humanistic coverage of what um, we often consider to be a de- dehumanizing region of the world. His um, his writings, um, he makes a, a long list of them um, then in his piece. He says, on Sunday, I didn't know whether he was alive or dead. Tiban lives in Nehal Az. It is a small community bordering Gaza. It has no Iron Dome missile defense to protect it. That's because it's right there on the border. And on Saturday, um, Nehal Az was one of the communities that came under mortar fire from above and then was evaded, invaded on the ground by Hamas terrorists. During their incursion into Israel, we now know Hamas mor- murdered more than 900 Israelis, brutalizing and kidnapping many others, most of them civilians, 2,400 Israelis uh, were wounded. The death toll continues to rise. Um, so this is Carmen now. We also know that um, the the number of those taken hostage is unknown, but Hamas is threatening to, um, to kill uh, one hostage every time Israel um, sends, uh, sends a rocket over the border into Gaza. Um, so that is what they're facing today. Yar goes on to say... <clears throat> to uh, to Amir, because he gets him on the phone. He gets Amir on the phone, and he says, um, what does your life look like right now? And Amir says, I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy my family is alive. I am grieving the dead. I am worried about friends and neighbors who were injured or kidnapped into Gaza. And yes, I'm worried about my country. 
Rosenberg um, then says, well, as a as a observant Jew, I don't use electronics. I don't access the Internet on Jewish holidays or the Sabbath. So by the time I logged on, it was really two days after. Um, and um, by then you had posted that you were safe. But then you shared your story about what you and your family experienced. And I'm wondering if you could share that with us now. And Tabine says, I'm actually happy you missed the events as they were happening. It was a very dark day, really the worst day in the history of the state of Israel. So it's October, uh, it's Saturday, October 7. We're in bed, we're sleeping. I live in a house with my wife and my two young daughters in a kibbutz, kibbutz Nahal Oz. It's a small community, 500 people, located directly on Israel's border with Gaza. It's a beautiful place, very resilient, courageous people, very strong sense of community and togetherness. But it's Saturday and it's six in the morning. We hear a very familiar sound, the sound of mortar um, whistling by on its way to explode. My wife, Miri, immediately pushes me, and we run from our bedroom to what we call the safe room. In every house in our community and other communities along the border with Gaza, there is a room that is built with very strong concrete. It can withstand a direct hit from a mortar or a rocket. And in most families, that's where we actually put our babies to bed or to sleep every night. So we run to the safe room where our two daughters are sleeping. Galia, three and a half, and Carmel, uh, one and a half years old. They don't know anything is happening. We shut the door behind us and we wait. This is something we're accustomed to. You know, we live on the border with Gaza. Attacks like this happen from time to time. You wait sometimes an hour, you pack your bag uh, when there's a break for a few minutes. And then, you know, when there's a break that's a little bit longer, you shove your kids in the car and you drive away from the border toward a more secure place. But this time, um, as we were packing, that's when I heard the most chilling noise I've ever heard in my whole life. Automatic gunfire, first in the distance, first in the fields, then in the road, then in the neighborhood, then outside my window. I'm now in the room with my wife. I hear the gunfire directly outside the window, as well as shouting. I understand Arabic. I understand exactly what is happening. Hamas has infiltrated our kibbutz. There are terrorists outside my window. I am now locked in my house. I am now locked in my safe room with two young girls. I don't know if anyone is coming to save us. That's how it started. Um, so then they talk about the Iron Dome and why uh, their community is not covered um, by the uh, the Iron Dome. Um, and then he uh, he says, so um, uh, we're locked in our safe room um, and we hope that the locks will hold when the terrorists come. He said, that's what happened in our case. We're sitting there. Um, the power had gone out. We are now in the dark. Um uh, the, the electricity stopped just a, a few minutes after the gunfire, gunfire began. I recognize we have no food in here. We did have some water. But then I am telling my one-and-a-half-year-old and my three-and-a-half-year-old, you have to be quiet. You have to be absolutely quiet. Not a word. You can't cry. You can't talk. It's dangerous. My little girls were absolute heroes. They waited silently in the dark for 10 hours they did not cry. Somehow they understood. Maybe that's not the right word, but somehow they felt how serious we were and they trusted us. In the beginning, we had cell reception. A short time later, there was no cell reception at all. But in the meantime, I had texted my parents, there are terrorists outside. I had also taken the time to call a colleague and a friend who is a veteran military affairs correspondent um, for Haaretz. And he told me, Amos, there are, I told him, Amos, there are terrorists outside my house. They might even be inside my house. And Amos said the scariest thing I'd ever heard in my whole life. Yes, I know. 
but it's not only in your kibbutz. It's not only in Nahal Oz. It's all over southern Israel. It's all over. It's in cities and towns and, and kibbutz and villages. Thousands of armed Hamas fighters have infiltrated our country. They have taken our military bases. And I then realized, if that's the situation, no one is coming for a very long time to confront these terrorists and to save my family. That's when Rosenberg asks, how did you ultimately give out? And that's when Taban gives the testimony of calling his dad. We'll, uh, we'll pick up on this story a little bit later um, in the hour. But right now, we have our friend Brett Nix waiting to join us from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. So uh, we'll jump into that conversation next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right. Our friend, Dr. Brett Nix, is joining us now from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He has been uh, teaching at least for the last day at a conference. And so he's joining us, you know, from, I don't know, some undisclosed location in America. Hey, Brett. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Are you in Philadelphia? I am in Philadelphia, the city Mm -hmm. of brotherly love. Okay, I love that. I love that. Um, you have some great, great stuff um, posted uh, at cmda.org, and um, I, I am hoping that we can talk about some of that today. Yeah, there is. There's just a tremendous amount of uh, information that's there. There are blogs and podcasts, <clears throat> and here's the challenge for us. You know, one of the things that we recognize more than anything else is each one of us has a calling, uh, and for some of us, we struggle with understanding what that is. But for those that have a faith background, that have a relationship with Jesus, the question for us is, what does this look like? What is, what is the alignment of our time, our treasure, our talents? How do we take those things and move them forward in the environment in which we work, which for many of us occupies a tremendous part of our day? You know, when you look at this, modern healthcare has a missional problem. You know, we think about it in general. This isn't the interface. It should be the interface of what your faith background is as well as your practice. You know, medicine has become highly transactional, uh, and in that transactional space, it is rarely relational. Uh, and we talk about this to the nth degree, about how important establishing relationship is for ourselves, for our family, and for our community, you know, and recognizing the simple fact that medicine is supposed to be about the patient. It's not about the payment. It's not about the doctor, the hospital, the insurance companies, and the bureaucracy that we deal with on a latest day-to-day basis. <clears throat> it's about the ability to say, how does the relationship that I have, the faith that I have, transcend this and allow me to practice in a manner such that I engage with my patients in a way to share the love of Jesus? So you're talking about uh, the word missional, and you're talking about missional living um, as a healthcare provider or somebody engaged in healthcare. Missional living is uh, is something that absolutely requires community. It requires I understand the mission of Christ. It requires I understand that I'm on co-mission with him, that I'm a co-missionary. Um, that, uh, so uh, can you just talk a little bit about this idea of missional living, not only in healthcare, but just, you know, broadly, like w- when you say missional living, like what does that mean? Well, it's great. You know, missional, <clears throat> missional living is really asking yourself the foundational question, which is, do I fully believe what it is that I say that I do? And if I do, how is that influencing every aspect of my life? How is it infusing the relationship and the conversations that I have with my family? Uh, how do I move past talking about the weather and sports uh, with my friends and get into the heart of the matter of these things, which get to the missional basis? You know, from a, from a medical perspective, you know, again, missional medicine finds its origins in the, in the simple basis of the earthly ministry of Jesus, you know, the great mm-hmm. physician. And he talks about this throughout the gospel. He talks about his, through his teachings, through his healings. 
and the ability for us to try to figure out how do we pattern that, recognizing that the vast majority, and the literature is robust with this, a lot of the medical pieces that we see are heavily influenced by spiritual health. And it's the ability to recognize that in our relationships with our family, with our friends, uh, not just the community that we serve through our career basis. But how do you how do you do this? And how often is it that we ignore the literature? We go back to the 1990s and onward, the number of articles that have been written in very high-level publications that identify a very real spiritual nature in healthcare and the ability for us to have a conversation and a dialogue with our patients, not just about their physical ailments and their mental ailments and challenges in there, but where is the spiritual factor of this? These are the things that bring missional living to life. You have me thinking, um, you know, when you talk about Jesus as the great physician, um, and that's a this incredible um, way for people in healthcare to understand, you know, their missional calling. Um, if you're listening right now and you're like, yeah, well, that's not my world. Well, how about missional parenting? What if we looked at Mary and Joseph and um, how their lives were transformed when they understood their parenting to be missional? And, and not just right. Mary and Joseph, but let's take Elizabeth and Zachariah. Um, maybe it's missional teaching. Maybe it is missional soldiering. Maybe it's missional tent making. Maybe it's missional fishing. Um, whatever. Like, right? Maybe it is uh, missional talking on the radio. Um, so whatever it is that you're doing in the world, um, you are in a mission field, on a mission field, deployed as a co-missionary. Um, and and really, it's intended to be this integrated, fully integrated expression of, of Jesus living out his life now through you and me. And so what does that look like? And you can get some great equipping for that um, right now at cmda.org, where they're talking about missional living. There is actually missional living in healthcare, um, and that's uh, not just uh, a, an online um, resource here, but um, actually a, an upcoming opportunity at a conference. So you want to check that out at cmda.org. Let's take a very, very brief um, break, and then I want to talk about this thing called <coughs> side-by-side ministry. Would, would that be, is that a good topic to pivot to next? I think it's a great topic. Let's move right into that. Great, great. All right, so uh, who are you side-by-side with? Maybe right now, maybe you're just waking up and your side-by-side is, hmm, you know, right there, cozy next to you. But uh, who are you side-by-side with and what is side-by-side ministry? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 150 million people, 150 million people actively use one particular app every month in the United States of America. I want that to be the Faith Radio app. How about you? If you're wondering how you could be encouraged in your faith at any time, anywhere, well, I got good news for you. There's literally an app for that. You can listen to Faith Radio live, any show on demand, no matter where you are at any time of the day or night. Download the free Faith Radio app right now. It's super easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. Let's connect faith to life. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix. You can find him online at brettnixmd.com. We're talking today about some resources posted at uh, the Christian Medical and Dental Association website, cmda.org. Brett, what is um, side-by-side ministry? So side-by-side ministry within CMDA is a community of people that come alongside each other, women specifically in this circumstance, because recognize 
being in a medical marriage uh, brings unique mm. sets of, of challenges um, that many people just don't understand. Uh, I will be honest with you, you know, while my wife is a nurse, being married to a physician, let alone one like myself that has a passion for global ministries uh, at earlier stages where I would be traveling and helping to not just care for individuals in, in uh, developing countries, but help to establish early program development in specialties that didn't exist. Uh, that had me on the road a good bit, and I felt that to be my calling. And again, my missional calling specifically, as we just discussed, the challenge with that, however, meant that many times uh, that left my wife alone. Uh, it made her un not understand, you know, how is this calling a positive thing if I'm not there to continue to reinforce our marriage? And so this was created, um, goodness gracious, back in the late 80s and bloomed uh, since that point in time, such that these side-by-side -side ministry chapters exist in about 90, almost 100 communities across the world where women that are uh, married to, to men that are in um, the healthcare ministry uh, and healthcare practice can connect, can come alongside each other, can, they can be in relationship with each other, but pray alongside each other to encourage them to understand the value proposition of being that relationship. Yes, this is an example of women coming alongside women. There are other organizations, even within CMDA, where if there's the husband who's married to a wife who is in the medical field, there's opportunities for men to come alongside each other, not directly through side by side, but the same type of relational support and dialogue to talk about the things that we know to be true. How difficult is it to be married to somebody who many times uh, their practice of medicine takes a tremendous amount of their time, and sometimes it feels as if that is their priority even when it may not be, just because of the amount of time that is given. First of all, I love this. Um, being a medical spouse obviously has unique challenges. Um, we, we would recognize that like being a missionary spouse, being a pastor's uh, spouse, um, I think that we recognize some of those unique situations and callings. And so let me just say to you right now, if you are, you know, you know, because of your own lived life experience, um, that as a Christian in uh, in a marriage, there are unique um, challenges and opportunities because of what your what your spouse does uh, day to day, hour by hour. What you know, what they're passionate about and what consumes their time. I'm wondering if, as a Christian who is a spouse in whatever you know, whatever uh, work or industry or ministry your your husband or wife is uh, are in, uh, how could you reach out to um, other spouses in that same vein and actually maybe have that be an entry point into um, side by side, like discipleship of other people walking with them, maybe on a part of the journey that you have already walked. What might that look like? Because um, you can you can do this in whatever uh, arena of life you happen to be uh, walking in. We're thankful that CMDA is um, resourcing this for people in in uh, in the medical and dental fields, but um, super uh, super appreciative of that. But also thinking like there's opportunity here for each of us and all of us. Um, all right, we are um, working to reconnect um, with Dr. Brett Nix right now because we had a little bit of a of a hiccup there technologically, but he's back now. Um, so Brett, I'm wondering if we might pivot now to this conversation about childhood bereavement. You guys have some incredible resources posted on this as well. Yeah, boy, I tell you, you know, I think this is true. Uh, childhood, you could just act, actually extend this out to anyone in life. Now, the comment about bereavement is basically when you are 
dealing with loss, a loss of a loved one, whether that be a parent, if you're a child, obviously a parent, uh, a sibling or otherwise, uh, bereavement is the focus of that loss. When we get into discussions about grief, grief is where you have the outward emotional expressions of that loss. Uh, and there are tremendous resources online. You know, one of the challenges that we face, I don't think this is new. The, the challenge that we have as we've been talking about this is, what does it look like in community these days? Uh, we've seen and we've had conversations about um, how we have a false sense of community through social media. And with COVID, a lot of kids had, you know, have not been necessarily in school and in relationship aside from family. Uh, so what does, what does navigating bereavement, what does navigating the stages of grief look like today, even for those that have a faith-based community, maybe in community there? There are resources online because here's the challenge is that many times uh, when we continue to see this, especially in the environment in the emergency department where I work, we have a lot of kids that have behavioral adjustment challenges. Uh, they're not underlying psychiatric issues. They just have struggling issues with coping uh, and the challenges that they face. And I'd take a look at this online because we recognize, you know, we always talk about the historical features. We know that grief goes through a process at, in the bereavement. You have a loss. Initially, you have this issue where you start with denial and then you move into stages of anger. You move you know, through these bargaining and depression type stages before you really get to the point of acceptance. How do we come alongside people in these communications? How do we come alongside people and recognize the struggles that they're going through more to be able to be a, a sounding board and a shoulder to lean on, to be able to come alongside them and pray for them, to let them know that they're not alone and to let them know that in this struggle, uh, there will be something that is seen in that acceptance phase where you may not understand why this happens now, but at a later point in time, there may be an enlightening period where you can realize not just why it occurred, but more importantly, how you've grown through that process. Um, you know, we see a, an increasing number of issues with uh, suicide in our country. Uh, we see this not just in the youth, but in, in adults. We see issues with overdoses, uh, not just the usual issues that we've had as far as people who died unexpectedly because of trauma or inadvertent medical issues. Uh, and so with these things that are coming forward, we really need to understand how do we come together in community? How do we support the youth? And there's some great resources on CMDA for people to take a look at. Uh, in addition to what we just talked about with the side-by-side -side ministries, ways to find out if that's available for you um, in community, where you live, whether here in the United States or globally as well. So many um, really great resources posted um, at cmda.org. And this one on childhood bereavement, um, I mean, you know, it, it's for everybody. And I want you to consider um, there are 14.7 million people under the age of 25 who have some kind of um, loss in their life, that they have experienced the death of a parent um, or they have experienced the death of, of a sibling. Um, grief is real. And, um, and we want to be able to not only tend to the needs of our own kids and grandkids, but, um, but to other children who God puts in our sphere of influence and maybe pass along resources to, to the parents and grandparents, um, to teachers, to our, uh, to our church leaders. Like, you know, don't assume that um, just because somebody has been to seminary, they are equipped on this front. And don't assume that just because somebody is doing children's ministry, they're equipped on this front. Um, childhood bereavement is real. Uh, it happens everywhere um, to people of every, um, of every variety. And oftentimes we are not very good at responding to it. And so certainly you can share these resources with your pediatrician. That would be great. Might be a really great entry point into conversation with your pediatrician 
um, about CMDA and how they might um, find great fellowship and resources there as well. Brett, as always, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely, Carmen. I mean, these are these are critical discussion points that we need to be you know, focusing on what we talked about. How do you live missionally? What does that really look like? What does that mean for you in healthcare or outside of it? Are you in community? Are you side by side with those that will support you through struggles in addition to uh, your spouse, your family that you have? Uh, who are those that you have in drawn close and recognizing, like we talked about with the issue with bereavement, um, knowing how to help someone who's grieving is incredibly difficult, especially as they're going through this loss. Uh, and many times uh, we feel like we are trying to offer comfort, but our efforts seem to be inadequate and unhelpful. There are critical tips and recommendations and things you listen to on these podcasts that will really help you sort these things through and recognize what you're able to do and when you need to actually seek additional assistance as well. That's Dr. Brett Nix um, and the resources we were talking about today at cmda.org. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus claims as his own calling the prophecy that is recorded in Isaiah 61. So this is from Luke chapter 14, but Jesus is quoting from something the prophet Isaiah um, said many hundreds of years before. So uh, this is following 40 days in the wilderness. Luke tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and, um, and the report about him went out through all the surrounding countryside, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke then says he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, which, by the way, is the posture of the teaching rabbi. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So let me ask you, friends, does Jesus still do that today? Is Jesus still good news to the poor? Is Jesus still liberating captives? Is Jesus still making blind people see? Is Jesus liberating those who are oppressed and imprisoned in every kind of darkness? Is the year of the Lord 2023 a year of the Lord's favor for people walking in darkness, addiction, fear? Julie Seals knows the answer to those questions is yes. Because in Jesus, she has found all her hope and her salvation. All My Hope, next with Julie Seals. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Julie Seals is joining us now. Um, among other things, she is the author of All My Hope, A Prisoner No More. Julie, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. It's a joy to be here with you today. All right. You're joining us from where? Let us get a little geography here. 
So geography, I am in Lake City, Florida. It's uh, about an hour north of the Georgia border. Uh, So, yeah, I went to the University of Florida. I know where Lake City is. There you go. So uh, I have I have some I have some context. So that's good. So, Julie, your um, your book, All My Hope, um, this is I mean, it's a book about you, but it is really a book about God. So um, the truth is, every single one of us, every one of us needs this like real substantial living hope. And so I'm wondering if you could summarize for us how you ended up in a place from which literally only God could save you. Yes. So um, I ended up in that place because when I was young, when I was about 18, I started going down the wrong road and I became very addicted to alcohol and crystal methamphetamine. Um, I had been born with spina bifida, had a leg amputated and a lot of things in life that I did not deal with well. So I decided to numb them with substances And those, it just took me down a long road, um, basically on a journey to hell on earth. At my lowest point, I was living as a fugitive on the run in Mexico with a meth lab in my bathroom and the Mexican federales were raiding my house and I, there were attempts made on my life. And it was in that desperate situation when I had lost custody of my only son and I literally had nobody left in my life and no hope that I cried out to God and asked him to become the center of my life or I was going to be lost forever. The next day I woke up and I didn't feel like God heard me because nothing seemed different. And the Mexican mafia came over and asked me if I would take drugs across the border for money. I didn't think God heard me. And so I said, why not? I don't care if I live or die. But God did hear me when I cried out. And as I was taking four pounds of methamphetamine across an international border into the United States, instead of walking through to the other side, I walked up to a U.S. marshal with a gun and I told her what I was doing and I turned myself in and I was arrested and went to federal prison in San Diego, California. And that is where I met Jesus when a prison ministry volunteer came in and convinced me that no matter what I had done, that Jesus Christ loved me. Yeah, this is such an incredible story of redemption that people are like, is this a movie script? Is this real? Did this really happen? Is this person legit? Um, (laughs) It's I mean, right. This is um, this is quite the harrowing tale. And I feel like there are. Um, there are so many threads here that we could pull. I think let's um, let's do this because I know we have friends listening who have children and grandchildren. They have nieces and nephews. They have the the children of friends um, who's you know who are trapped in addiction. Some of them for decades. Yes. And so I just think I want to ask this question. I'm going to ask it like very in a straightforward way. Is okay. is real is real transformation, real liberation, real healing? Is that possible? Is there real hope for the person who has been slowly dying for decades from the road of addiction? Do miracles really happen? Yes, miracles really happen. God is incredible. His power can transform anybody, no matter how deep the pit they're in. And so I think that when we um, when we talk about this, um, yes. you are 
you, you are this beautiful, beautiful living testimony. So first of all, thank you, Julie, for you know, being this magnificent living testimony of the truth. Again, we're talking with Julie Seals. Her book is All My Hope, A Prisoner No More. I know you're wondering where you can connect with her. That would be Julie Seals, S-E-A-L-S, julieseals.com. Julie, um, this uh, the subhead of your book um, is not lost on me, A Prisoner No More. I'm wondering if maybe you will talk with us about what that means. Yes. Well, a prisoner no more. Um, Really, we can be a prisoner and be on the outside of a prison. (laughs) We don't have to be inside of an actual physical prison to be a prisoner. And when I surrendered my life and my heart to Jesus Christ, when I was in federal prison, I had years of depression and anxiety and self-hatred and shame and guilt just wound up around me and holding me captive. And when I gave my life to Jesus and asked him to forgive me, and I was weeping and just completely devastated over who I used to be. His love came flooding into my heart. And I knew that I was forgiven. And I knew that I was loved. And all of a sudden, it was like all of that darkness broke off of me. And I had more joy inside that prison because I was free on the inside than I had ever had in my years of running and doing drugs. I think sometimes, Julie, it's just hard for people to imagine that going to prison is like the best possible thing that could ever happen to a person. Um, But that is a part of your story. Like, right. I mean, first of all, I mean, I feel like it's God who led you to turn yourself in. And then, I mean, I, right. I mean, right. That for you, I mean, it's one thing to go before the Lord and say, save me, liberate me. I mean, I, I want to die. I don't want to live like this anymore. I'd rather die than be living like this. Um, and, and crying out to God and then waking up the next day and feeling like, well, nothing changed. I mean, I am still physically where I was when I cried out. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and then you, you turned yourself in knowing knowing that is going to result in you going to prison. I mean, I assume that like you'd done that math, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) I did do the math. In fact, I knew that four pounds of methamphetamine duct taped around my waist was a life sentence, but I was so desperate. And I was literally losing any grip on sanity that I had left. And I had gotten to this place where I was dying in every way and I knew it. And I was that desperate that I would rather God do whatever it took. And that's what I prayed. I said, God, do whatever it takes. I can't meet you halfway. Mm. Yeah, there's there's no halfway um, and there's no turning back. And there is only surrender. Um, and I, I appreciate all of those parts and pieces of this story and where it leads us. Uh, again, no matter what our particular captivity, no matter what is holding you captive today. So, you know, as you're, as you're hearing Julie, I'm just going to ask you, like, what is holding you captive today? Mm -hmm. Um, And are you willing, you know, to, to let Jesus take it all? There's no halfway uh, in terms of surrender. This testimony that you, that you offer where it felt like it broke off of you. The image that comes to my mind there is in Pilgrim's Progress, where this, 
this weight of of sin and shame and guilt that he's been, you know, carrying on his back, invisible to others, but absolutely weighing him down as a human being. I mean, just weighing him down in every way um, that at the foot of the cross, I mean, that is broken off and it, you know, it rolls down this mountain um, and it rolls right into the empty tomb. Like, right, that's that's where it lands. Um, and so I think that there are people, I know that there are, Julie, who um, they want that, but yeah. that complete surrender thing is really scary. It is scary, but at the same time, for me, I was so desperate that I... I was willing to accept anything God could do for me because my reality had gotten so dark and so hard. And I would just encourage your listeners today that that Jesus, the impossible can happen through his love and his power. And no matter how dark things are, God created us for a hope and a future. And if we will put all our hope in him, he will bring us to a place that is so incredible that that healing we never imagined becomes our new reality. Hmm. I want to talk. um, I want to talk about your ministry. Um, First, I want to talk about prison ministry. Your husband is a prison chaplain. That's curious. The two of you have a ministry um, to prisoners um, share with us a little bit about that. So, um, my husband wasn't a prison chaplain when I met him. Um, (laughs) he had given his life to Jesus after his first wife of 20 years died of breast cancer. And when he saw her and she took her last breath in the hospital bed, he was not a good husband Um, and he knew that he needed a savior. So he gave his life to the Lord. I met him about a year later and we got married a year later. And he said, Julie, there has to be more to living for God than just going to church. And I said, well, there is, I made God a promise that if he let me out, I'd spend the rest of my life going back in. So we've been doing prison ministry the entire 17 years of our marriage And God had him marry an ex-felon, which is me, because he had a plan for him to be a chaplain to broken men inside of the prison. Hmm, It's amazing. It's extraordinary. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Julie Seals in just a moment. I know you want to connect with her. You can do that at julieseals.com. The book is All My Hope, A Prisoner No More. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with uh, Julie Seals. She is, among other things, the author of All My Hope, A Prisoner No More. 
Um, Julie, you will want to know that Mary is on the text line. Mary is uh, an everyday, everyday friend here. And she says, um, this is my prayer for my daughter and has been now for 10 years, that God would do whatever it takes. Mary, um, Mary's daughter is, um, uh, is a lot like uh, you were before um, Jesus got a hold of you. And Vance says, um, prison was the best thing that happened to me. Uh, as well. It saved my life and led me to Jesus. So um, there's, al- there's also a listener who says um, her voice doesn't, um, doesn't match her story. I don't know why, but I didn't expect her to sound humble or gentle. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> right, right. So there you go. So, um, so thank you for the ministry you're doing today and the ministry that your story um, is doing in the lives of those um, who are listening and those who, who read the book. You describe yourself as a hope dealer. You went from being a drug dealer, right, to being a hope dealer. Um, tell us what that means. Um, well, when we give our life to Jesus, we have the hope of eternity alive on the inside of us. And and we carry that hope to people everywhere we go. And God let me out of prison after only 22 months. And there is no greater joy in my life then hearing what you just shared with me about your listeners, about Mary and Mary, keep praying for your daughter because God is faithful and he'll do it. Um, I go into prisons and I minister and share my story. And, and I have, there are men and women who come to an altar in a prison and they are weeping. Well, not together. The prisons are separate, <laughs> but um, they are weeping and surrendering and believing for the first time ever that Jesus will really forgive them of everything they've done and make them a brand new creation. And there is nothing that brings me greater joy than carrying the hope of Jesus to people who think there's no hope for them. Um, Julie, uh, thank you. Um, Thank you so very much. I want to give you the opportunity um, here quickly to tell people about um, Hope Recovery Ministry. So Her Hope Recovery is a small group of precious women in recovery that I have gathered right here in Lake City, Florida. And we meet once a month for breakfast and we do a Zoom every Monday night and talk about recovery and Jesus at the center of it. We do life together. I take them to women's conferences and they're getting their kids back from DCF. And I'm seeing miracles happen as their faith in God goes deeper. I just love that. You guys, um, you can connect with Julie and all of the resources that we've talked about. You can be equipped for this kind of ministry um, to engage, um, you know, right where you are as well. All of it at Julie Seals, S-E-A-L-S, JulieSeals.com. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's been an honor. Yeah, likewise. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. All right. Lots of you texting in. Hey, 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 what about the rest of the story? You know, we left um, we left uh, the T-Bond family sealed up in their safe room um, in their house in the kibbutz on the border with Gaza. Um, and he had called his dad. And you say, well, why did he call his dad? Well, his dad happens to be a retired general from the IDF. Um, and he called his dad. His dad is 62 years old. He lives in Tel Aviv, which is, you know, Israel's really small, so it's not that far, but it's still quite a distance. And he told his parents, or his parents said, his parents said, we are coming. We are coming. Now, ordinarily, it's an hour and 20-minute drive, okay? So I want you to think about that. We are coming, 
So that promise of somebody coming to save you from the outside, the father making the promise to his son and to his grandkids, we are coming. But the hour and 20 minutes goes by and nobody comes. Of course, um, uh, Amir says, of course, this this is totally contrary to logic. It's totally contrary to logic. Who would drive toward what we were experiencing? Who would drive toward this hell? And then he tells himself, okay, okay, I'm asking my two young daughters to put their faith in me. And now I'm going to put my faith in my dad. We're just going to put our faith that he's coming. I kept telling myself, that's what I have to do right now. I have to trust my father. My father is trustworthy. If he said he's going to come, then he's going to come. If he says he's coming to save us, he will do it. It was many, many hours later that my father finally arrived. Of course, it took a long time to hear the story of why it took so long. It's an incredible story in and of itself. So I'm not going to read all of the testimony. It's actually in the article in The Atlantic. We're going to die here. Um, But um, let me just summarize it this way. They came across these young people as his mother and dad were driving from Tel Aviv toward the Gaza border so that they could liberate their own family. They would come upon these people, um, these young people walking barefoot in the street, covered with blood. They had escaped what we now know was the massacre at the music festival. And they would just load their vehicle with as many of these young people as they could and drive as fast as they could back in the direction of safety and then drop them off when they saw somebody else that they could pass them off to. And so every time that they were making their way um, to liberate their own family, instead, they loaded their car with others and took them back to safety. And they did it over and over and over again until they came across some Israeli soldiers who had been wounded. And they picked them up. And that's when um, Amir's dad uh, got a rifle, because uh, although he's a retired member of the military, you know, uh, unlike here in the United States, where anybody can own an AR-15, you can't in Israel. um, But that's when he got one. Um, And so he was armed when he arrived. And he also um, talked uh, another person that he found along the way into going with him. And so that's uh, that's how they arrived. That is how they arrived at this kibbutz to liberate um, to liberate their family. And so I'm going to just read the very end of this. He says, you know, it's it's 10 hours in and we're starting to hear gunfire again. But this time it's two kinds of guns. And that's when I realized there is a battle and it's a battle for us. We realize there's an exchange of fire. And so I tell my wife and I tell my babies, he's coming. Father is coming. He's fighting for us. Of course, it didn't come. They didn't come immediately. They went to other houses first, house to house, neighborhood to neighborhood. I don't remember how long it took. I just remember hearing the gunfire getting closer and closer and closer. Um, It was now 2 p.m. But I tell them, I tell my baby's grandfather is coming. If we stay quiet, he's coming. He's going to get us out of here. At 4 p.m., after 10 hours like this, that's when we hear the bang on the window and we hear the voice of my father. And my oldest daughter squeals with delight. Sabahagia! He is here. We all start crying, and that's when we knew we were safe. This is a testimony. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a testimony that help comes from the outside. This is how salvation works. There is a real enemy. He is really prowling around. We cannot save ourselves. We are trapped in the dark. Help has to come from the outside. And the Father who has promised 
has sent the son into enemy territory to seek and to save the lost. So if you're hiding in the dark today and you feel trapped and you feel alone and you're afraid, I want you to know that God has sent a savior and his name is Jesus. I want you to trust the father today and let yourself be found. Let yourself be found. Let us be praying today. Let us be diligently pursuing others with the love with which God has pursued us in Jesus Christ. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.